0: Thank you so much for coming out and leaving your studios. Um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read two stories. Um, The first because it it takes place in an art class Um, and I hope that feels relevant Um, even though actually it's an amateur art class so it might not feel that relevant. Um, But I just want to say thank you so much for you know I'm coming and you've just been such a great and inspiring group of people and I'm sorry that I'm leaving soon. So the first one is called Teen Romance. Even before I really saw Bobby I sensed him as a sheep does a wolf. I could feel him maneuvering around the easels and stools toward me. This was in Mixed Media One, Wednesday evenings, 6 to 9, at the New School. The only other man in the class was a retired principal. Bobby was good-looking enough, boyish and a little scruffy, with meaty shoulders, dark eyes, and a square jaw, but that didn't explain his magnetism. When he sat beside me, my shell gave way to feathers. Bobby guessed, he said in a hoarse voice. I said, Sophie Applebaum. Then our teacher stood up. She was wiry with muscles and had long, thick, auburn hair. Her name was Maureen, and she was the kind of 50 that made getting older seem like a reward instead of a punishment for living. She spoke with a Midwestern accent and said, You guys, like a camp counselor. Meanwhile, you could tell how smart she was. Her teaching style, she confessed, was loosey-goosey and had become even more so since she'd adopted a three-year-old insomniac from Vietnam. If we wanted serious instruction, she said, she'd give us the name of another instructor. She seemed to know exactly who she was and this made me want to copy her. After telling us her hands-off theory of teaching, she asked us to go around the room and introduce ourselves. First up was the woman on my right, whose face and neck were beigeed with foundation. She was younger than Maureen, but seemed older. She reminded me of a hotel lobby with overstuffed chairs, thick rugs, and no natural light or air. Margot, she said, I'm in PR. I said, Sophie, and hoped that was enough. Maureen, friend to all the Earth's awkward, nodded that it was. Bobby was the only one in the class who provided both first and last names. Then he coughed, changing his voice from rough to smooth, so that when he said, I'm a waiter, I was reminded of Mel Torme's nickname, the Velvet Fog. We had a cancer survivor, an accountant, and a sexy squirrel who was an actress and told us her name was Cheryl with a C. The oldest member of the class was a great-grandmother, the youngest, a 12th grader, who didn't turn down the volume on her Walkman when she introduced herself. She practically shouted, I want to design CD covers! And Bobby said, for the deaf, just loud enough for me to hear. Maureen said, talk amongst yourselves, and from a grocery bag, she produced the objects we were to draw, an old boot, bottles, a chiffon scarf, apples, grapes, an umbrella. Bobby opened an old tackle box of art supplies, and I opened my brand new one. He squeezed paint onto his palette like he'd done it a thousand times before. I was sharpening a pencil when my neighbor, Margot sighed in my direction. She said... Can you believe this? What? She said, I only took this class to meet men. Bobby reached his hand out to her and for the third time in less than an hour said, Bobby guessed. Margot said, age appropriate men. But you could tell she was flattered. She turned back to me and said, it's crazy, right? And I realized that she saw herself and me as one and the same, two lovelorn peas in a manless pod. She started sketching. He started painting. I stared at the boot and bottles. Without looking up, Bobby said, get to work. I dug in. Soon I forgot myself and him. It was just the boot and my drawing, the boot and my drawing. I, sta- I started at the sound of Bobby's voice. You want to smoke a cigarette? The brisk evening was turning into a cold night, and Bobby took off his black leather jacket and said, Here. I said, Thanks, I'm okay, even though I was cold. Come on, he said, and I put it on. He offered me a cigarette, a camel non-filter, but I took out one of my own Benson & Hedges. I've never known anyone who smokes camels, I said. I think of it as a cigarette you'd smoke in the desert. He said, whereas you'd smoke a Benson and Hedges at your babysitting job. So I said, what do you do besides wait tables? He said, you know, not every waiter in New York aspires to something else. So you're a career waiter? He said, I do this and that. Like, name one thing. He said, I smoke cigarettes. I wasn't sure why, uh, why I was uncomfortable, but I thought facts might help. How old are you? He said, how old do you think I am? And I thought, actor. I said, M- I said, my age, 33? He picked a piece of tobacco off his tongue. Why do you want to know, he said. You want to pin me down? You want to say Bobby Guest is a 33-year-old waiter? No. He said, what do you really want to know, Applebaum? And his calling me by my last name made me feel like we were ninth graders. I like that. He said, you want to know if I'm seeing anyone? I'm not. Are you seeing anyone? Sorry, don't answer that. Okay. You can ask me one question, he said. One question, and I'll answer truthfully. Okay, I said, what are you trying to do now? He gave me a wolfy smile. This minute, with you? I said, what's your goal in life? And winced at how corny and earnest I sounded. He looked away. He thought, I guess I'm trying to become a better man than the one I'm hardwired to be. He seemed surprised to hear himself say something he meant. Then he put the cigarette out with his boot and kicked it in the gutter. I'm 37, he said. Upstairs, Cheryl was standing in front of Bobby's painting. He said in elementary school, beep, beep. She turned around so that when she went by him, her breast skimmed his chest. She said, your painting is excellent. It was. It reminded me of Hopper's Lonely Landscapes of Cape Cod. I said, what are you doing in mixed media one? He said, same thing you're doing here. Really, I said, "Why aren't you in advanced painting?" He said, "Wouldn't be the best in there." On our second cigarette break, he offered me his jacket, and I took it without a word. He said, "So, what line of work are you in, Applebaum?" When I told him I wrote advertising copy, he asked if he'd seen any of my ads. "Live, live, live, girls, girls, girls," I said. "That's mine." <laughs> He seemed to know that I'd made this joke before. He went right by it. He asked if I enjoyed my work. I said, the important thing is, at, is that at this moment I don't hate it. Ah, he said, aiming high. Excuse me, I said, you were just saying how much you enjoyed waiting tables? Waiting tables is a day job, he said, until you make it big as a smoker. He moved closer to me as though for warmth. He was looking into my eyes, but I got the feeling that he wasn't trying to see who I was as much as gauge his effect on me. I said, you're an actor, aren't you? What kind of thing is that to say? I said, I didn't mean it as an insult. Yes, you did. Upstairs, Maureen walked around the room, looking at everyone's work. Her face was as impassive regarding my muddy sketch as it was Bobby's masterpiece. When he and I walked out of class, though, I saw her gazing at his canvas. The elevators were crowded and slow, so Bobby and I took the stairs. He was carrying a helmet, and I said, you ride a motorcycle? I do, he said. Isn't it really dangerous? He shrugged. Outside, he asked where I lived, and I told him the Upper West Side. He lived in the village. He was looking indistinctly down 12th Street. You want to get something to eat? I did. Are we talking about a date here? He laughed. He made me feel both younger and older than I was, both inexperienced and past experience. I said, I try not to go out with guys like you, a line for a junior high or nursing home cafeteria. He said, what do you mean, guys like me, waiters, actors, writers? "'Satters,' I said. I noticed his eyebrows then. They slanted upward, and I realized they said what he couldn't or wouldn't. I'd hurt his feelings. He nodded, as people do when they get a joke and don't think it's funny. "'I was just hungry,' he said. I was pretty sure we were headed toward a a restaurant, but I didn't know. We weren't talking. We walked down Fifth Avenue like two pedestrians who happened to be moving at the same pace.'" Almost to myself, I said, I knew you were an actor. He shook his head. At his motorcycle, I said, what do you write? This is my stop, he said. Good night, Applebaum. I thought about him during the week. I didn't want to, but I did. I called my friends. I said, I mean, what kind of 37-year-old calls himself Bobby? One said, hockey player? Another said Bobby Kennedy. I repeated the question to my older brother who said, can we get to the point of this conversation? Just a minute into my description of Bobby, my younger brother imitated a robot in a television program from our childhood. Danger, Will Robinson. I got to the new school early and sat in last week's seat, across from Cheryl with a C, whose jeans were so tight her crotch was a rounded W. I pretended not to see Margot walk in, though I sent her an ESP message. Please don't sit next to me. She sat next to me. Hi, I said. I sort of thought you were dropping the class. Why? You said you wanted to meet men. Well, she said, art for art's sake, I guess. She opened her tackle box. I might meet somebody who knows somebody. I was trying not to watch the door. When Bobby came in, I hunted for nothing in my tackle box. I heard the scratchy metal static of a Walkman and looked up to see the 12th grade CD designer sitting on the stool I'd thought of as Bobby's. Bobby was sitting next to Cheryl. I told the 12th grader I'd forgotten her name and she said, Michelle. I wanted to ask if she'd mind turning her Walkman down. Instead, I heard myself say a friendly, what are you listening to, Michelle? She said, Zeppelin. She was wearing the outfit she'd worn last week, an oversized sweater with holes, a long black skirt and army boots. I said, I didn't know anyone still listened to Zepp. My dad does, she said. He's a DJ. What station? She said, parties, and let her wavy black hair fall in front of her face. I wished I had hair I could disappear under. A feigning couch on a platform had replaced our still life and Maureen announced that we had a model. In the hallway I heard whistling. I've always been partial to whistlers and in walked a portly man in a plaid flannel bathrobe and yellow flip-flops. His thinning hair was dyed an unfortunate maroonish brown though not as I would soon see everywhere. (laughs) He held his clothes in a bundle. This is Bert, Maureen said. He's a painter himself. We all watched as she opened a locker for him, and we all saw his big white underpants fall to the floor. I felt like my own underpants were suddenly on display, or worse, my father's. But Bert just stooped and grabbed them and threw them in the locker, whistling. He untied his bathrobe and flip-flopped over to the couch, where he settled his big belly and small penis into a pose. Is that comfortable, Bert? Maureen said. Can you hold that? Sorry. Can you hold that? It was. He could. Instead of a pencil, I took out brushes and paints, which allowed me to portray the subject more impressionistically. I started with Bert's head and left a big blank space for his body. I concentrated on his eyes and nose. I I needed a cigarette as badly as I ever had and when Bert stood up to stretch, I grabbed my jacket and headed out. As I passed Bobby, he leaned back and said, Hey. I said a flirtless, Hi, and kept going. A few minutes later, he joined me outside. He lit his cigarette, cupping it against the wind. When he held out his jacket to me I said, I have a jacket. He said, why are you mad? I'm not mad. He said, I'm the one who should be mad. Why should you be mad? He said, if you don't know, I can't tell you. We stood smoking and the quiet made me uneasy. Just out of curiosity I said, why do you call yourself Bobby? What do you mean? I mean instead of Bob or Rob or Robert. I tried to soften my tone by adding, my brother's name is Robert. He's probably a Robert then. I said, he is a Robert. Bobby said, you know the poet Billy Collins? No. You should, he said. You'd like him. I nodded as though I often read poetry and always understood it and would seek out the poems of poet Collins at my earliest opportunity. (laughs) Acquaintance to acquaintance, he said, how are you liking the class? I like it, he said. What about Maureen? I was relieved to talk about her, and I went on and on. Talking about her made me feel stronger and also, and also looser, like Maureen herself. At the end of my appreciation, I said, I hope I'm like her when I'm 50. He said, you don't look that good now. When I could talk, I raised my hand and called out, medic, medic. I'm teasing you, he said. You're an asshole, I said. You'll never get beyond your hard wiring. You can't do that, he said. What? You can't take something I trusted you with and use it against me. Why, I said. You just did it to me. I need a sip of water. So are my glasses really dirty? Why aren't I reading more clearly? Sorry. (sighs) Maureen was standing at my easel, her fingers at her mouth. She said, Sophie, and I liked how she said my name. It was thoughtful, even affectionate. She suggested I use the whole canvas, and for the sake of composition, getting my subject down completely before focusing on any one detail. Out of the corner of my eye, I focused on the detail of Cheryl's lip-glossed lips smiling at something Bobby was saying. I pretended not to notice them. I pretended to be lost in my art. I pretended to be a painter, painting. When I felt Bobby staring at me, I looked up. Our eyes met and he held my gaze. He held my gaze like he was holding me and I held his as though holding him. Then he looked away. He was gone, and it was over. A one-minute stand. Before the end of class, Bert put on his bathrobe and walked around the room, pausing before each easel to regard the painting or drawing or collage of himself. He said nothing to the principal, who sat with his hands folded on his lap, and nothing to great-grandmother, who beamed at her own sketch, Who knew what Bert saw or hoped to see? His face was expressionless, but I worried about how we all must have wounded his vanity. I took a few steps back from my painting and saw it now as I hadn't before. It had many failings, but I stared at the most glaring of them. I'd made Bert's belly even bigger and his penis even smaller than life had made them. It would be harder to shrink his belly than to enlarge his penis. The problem was I'd avoided looking at his penis while I'd had the chance, and now I couldn't remember the specifics. I tried to call forth penises I'd known. I'd stared at some of them, but even in front of me they'd seemed unknowable, and not a single one came to my aid now. I mixed more skin color, Blindly, I'd added, I added length and girth to the tiny stem. I painted frantically while monitoring Bert's progress around the horseshoe. When he was only two easels away, I stepped back to see what he would see. His penis was now porn long and log wide, and even worse, waved up and sloped down like the trunk of an elephant. I had just enough time to reshape it and stopped mid-stroke as Bert approached. I wasn't about to paint his penis while he watched. Instead, I touched up his earlobe. I held my breath, but Bert sauntered right by my easel and onto Margo's, where he stood, watching her sketch. Well, she said, say something. He said, I like my chin. Margot laughed. It was a good, loud laugh. And Bert laughed with her. In case they wanted to be alone, I got up to wash my brushes. And rude, I glanced at Michelle's painting, a fantastical forest in which Bert, medievally clothed and pierced by an arrow, was bleeding to death. <laughs> Through her headphones, I heard, If there's a bustle in your hedgerow. As I waited for the sink, I saw that Cheryl was reading a script with one line highlighted. Faintly, I heard her trying out various intonations under her breath. A cheerful, awesome pudding. A blasé, awesome pudding. When I got back to my easel, Bobby was sitting on my stool and smiling at my painting. Get away from there, I said. He said, I'd like you, I'd like you to paint me sometime, Applebaum. That week, I worked with Sam on a pitch for Linstitute, a new line of anti aging skincare products. At 52, or roughly 3,100 in advertising years, Sam knew about aging as no one else in the agency did. He'd once been a creative director and now is a freelancer. He'd once produced award-winning TV campaigns and now was designing a mail package containing a moisturizer sample. I asked Sam what I'd been wondering ever since I'd started in advertising. Where are all the older people? Deadpan, he said, dead. Then he said that maturity was valued almost as much in advertising as it was in cheerleading. He was the only art director who still used a marker and pad instead of a computer. I kept the products on the windowsill for him to draw and me to try. Facial cleanser and body scrub, toners, masks, and moisturizer for day and for night. I I taped a sign that read Linstitute to my door, and Sam added Mental. I hung a poster warning of the dangers of sun and cigarettes and extolling the benefits of eight glasses of water a day. When Sam and I ran out of ideas, I'd say, water, and get us each a bottle, or I'd hand him the moisturizer and say, you look a little dry. We showed our work on Monday and again on Tuesday, and everyone loved it until late Wednesday when we met with Bruce, the highest of the higher-ups. We took the elevator from 9 down to the lobby and switched elevator banks to go up to 23. We shuffled into Bruce's big office with the teams from 18 and 20. At 6 o'clock, when everyone was still getting sodas from the fridge and joking around, I pictured Bobby walking into Mixed Media 1. It was after 7 by the time Bruce said, good work to the other teams as they left to make negligible changes on their TV and print campaigns. His face changed from pleased to disconcerted as Sam presented our concept of mailing the package from Switzerland where the non-existent institute supposedly was. He shook his head while I read the fictional director's letter aloud in a Swiss accent. As though Sam and I were children living in a fairy tale, Bruce reminded us that there was no real institute, and these products had been developed in Trenton. Time was suddenly short. Bruce didn't even want to see the rest of our concepts. It's more important to show synergy, he said, and asked us to execute mail packages off the TV spots, a more beautiful you and about face. As ever, Sam showed nothing but his own equanimity. He took off his glasses and let them hang on their string around his neck. What's the time frame? Bruce wanted to see our work the next morning. Sam and I didn't talk on the elevator down, down, down to one, or on the one up to nine. We ordered dinner. He called his wife. At eight, when we sat down to work, I pictured Cheryl standing outside with Bobby while he smoked. Why so sad, Sam said. You got a date, pal? I said no and felt especially dateless and lifeless and hopeless, realizing how much I'd wanted to see Bobby. Sam said, you need water, and got us each a bottle. We put on night moisturizer. I suggested the line, Trenton makes, the world takes. Shh. Sam said, hand me a bindi. I passed him one of the Indian cigarettes he'd smoked since quitting smoking. About three minutes later, he held up his pad and showed me designs for brochures based on the TV spots. How did you do that? Sam said, when someone asks me to eat shit, I don't nibble. Before the next class, I watched the door for Bobby, but he didn't show up. Maureen announced Bobby was in a motorcycle accident. I heard a gasp and realized it belonged to me. Cheryl and I spoke in unison. Is he okay?" He hurt his leg, Maureen said. He'll be here next week. When I opened my tackle box, inside was a paperback of Billy Collins' poems. It was inscribed, for Applebaum, Grudgingly, Bobby guessed. I assumed that Bobby had given me the poems to show that he was smart or deep or poetic himself. I assumed it was just Bobby saying his name out loud again. Still, I took the book to bed with me. I thought I'd read one poem, roll my eyes, and go to sleep. I stayed up half the night reading. "'Listen to this,' I told Sam, and while he drew, I read the first stanza of the poem, "'Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House.' "'The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same rhythmic bark, "'that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on, on their way out. "'Go on,' on, Sam said. "'What are you stopping for?' I read the poems at my desk during lunch and in line for the ATM. I read the poems waiting for the subway and waiting for a friend to meet me for dinner and then I read them to her. She said, you act like Bobby wrote them. When Bobby walked into class everyone applauded. He bowed and leaned his crutches against the wall. He hoisted himself up on the stool next to Cheryl. Maureen looked exhausted and yawned before resuming class. She asked if anyone would mind if Bert changed his pose. Only the retired principal raised his hand. He kept it in the air. Maureen seemed to be lost, and Bobby, our wounded hero, rescued her. I'm afraid you're out of luck, Mr. Marshall. Tight-lipped, the principal lowered his hand. Fine, he said, if I'm the only one. His tone was punishing though, and it occurred to me that he probably missed the authority he'd once had to suspend and expel. I went over to Bobby and asked if he was okay. He was, he said, and he thanked me for asking. I really like the poems. He said, good. I love them, I said, thank you. He said, anytime, and Cheryl nodded as though the gift were from both of them. Bert struck an excellent new pose in which his thigh obscured his penis from my view, and I found myself doing exactly as Maureen had instructed. I got all of him down, and he filled the entire canvas. When Bert got up to take a break, Bobby said, Psst, apple bomb. He motioned to the door. Did you just say, Psst? No one says, Psst, anymore. I followed him onto the elevator. So what happened? He didn't answer until we were outside and I'd lit our cigarettes. I got clipped on the West Side Side Highway, he said. Had a little too much bourbon. You were drinking bourbon on the West Side Highway? Not on the highway, Applebaum. That is the stupidest thing I ever heard. I said, are you just a fucking idiot or what? That's when he leaned forward on his crutches and kissed me. He kissed me and I kissed him. Then he pulled back and said, yes, I am a fucking idiot. Upstairs I painted sloppy and free. I painted like an artist on Quaaludes. Previously I'd been desperate to make a painting that Maureen or anyone might think was good, but I forgot all about that now. I was painting what I saw and felt. I was painting large. Maureen took a look and her face said, What's up, pussycat? At the end of class I closed my tackle box and leaned my painting against the wall to dry. I stood there waiting for Bobby to finish talking to Cheryl. Meanwhile, I studied the artwork of my classmates. Margot passed me on her way out with Bert, and her goodbye was the unified kick of a hundred rockets. Bobby was still talking or listening to Cheryl, who saw me and pretended not to. I headed toward him, losing heart at about 200 beats per minute. I thought all I could manage was a good night to both of them. Instead, I heard myself say, you want to get something to eat or something? Bobby said, let's go. We went to Cafe Loop on 13th Street and sat at one of the front tables so we could smoke. That's how long ago this was. We ordered, and, and uh, Walkman too, listen to Walkman and smoke cigarettes in restaurants. That's the, those are the old days. We ordered red wine and salads and rare steaks with fries. So he said, where are you from, sailor? Outside of Philadelphia, I said, a town called Surrey. Never heard of it. No one has, I said. Bobby told me he'd grown up in Manhattan and gone to Collegiate, a private school for boys on 78th Street, and then to Yale. I thought I heard pride in his voice when he said he was one paper short of graduation. That seems stupid, I said. Obviously, he said, deadpan, it hasn't held me back. Didn't it make your parents crazy? They were already crazy. He said they'd briefly acted in B-movies. No, I wouldn't have heard of them. And they hadn't done anything but dress for dinner since. I said, like, what do they wear? They dress, he repeated. He described his mother in chiffon, his father in a dinner jacket. It sounds so elegant, I said. It would be more elegant if cocktail hour didn't start at noon. Answering my unasked question, he said the money came from his grandfather who'd made a killing in the demolition business. He'd leveled Penn Station. Bobby admitted then that he himself had done some acting. One soap opera, a few commercials, an off-Broadway play. He was good at it, he said, but it was bad for him. He wrote stories now. He half read half sang them, accompanying himself on guitar at a club in the East Village. A few months ago a literary agent had seen him, had seen him there and asked him to type the stories up and send them to her, but he hadn't. Why not? He said, what if she rejects them? You'll we'll send them somewhere else? He shook his head. This way I can always say an agent asked me to send my stories, he said. I get to be the one who stands in the way of my success. We noticed at the same time that we were the last table in the restaurant and Bobby looked at the check. I said, I'll split it with you. He was adding it up. You can pay, he paused and instead of next time said, never. At the code check, I saw that the restaurant sold T-shirts and baseball caps with its logo, fingers making a shadow wolf. Outside, Bobby asked me if I wanted to take a walk to Union Square. You're crippled, I said. He said, I'm fine, and he was. He moved easily on crutches, and when I said so, he told me that he'd become an expert after his last motorcycle accident, when he'd also learned to write with his left hand. I said, do you have some kind of death wish? I just lit a cigarette, and he said, what about you, Smokey? At Union Square he leaned me up against a wall and kissed, and I'm sorry, he leaned me up against a wall and kissed and kissed me. He unzipped his jacket and pulled me inside. I was 15 just then, there in the park at night under the trees. We could hear barking from the dog run and he asked if I'd read the poem, Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. I read them all. He asked if I had a favorite and I said, Uh, the revenge fantasy, Bobby said, the rival poet. I said, I love, you are the one below fidgeting in your rented tux with some local Cheryl hanging all over you. Some local Cindy hanging all over you, Bobby said. Isn't that what I said? You said Cheryl. C names, I said. Are you sleeping with her? No, he said, I've been living like a monk. That's funny, I said. I've been living like a monkey. I waited a second. Why do you sit with her? So I can watch you, he said, from a safe distance. We kissed, and then he pulled back. Hear that, he said. It was the wind, and we stood there listening. I lit a cigarette and said, really? Why do you sit with Cheryl? He pulled my hand over to light his cigarette off of mine. He said, she reminds me of myself. You're kidding. I said, how? He thought a minute. He said, when they were making Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman asked Sir Lawrence Olivier why he acted, what drove him. You know what he said? Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. The barking was making Bobby feel guilty, he said. He needed to get home to walk his dog, Arlo. I started to hum the chorus of Arlo Guthrie's song Alice's Restaurant, and Bobby joined in. I was stunned by how beautiful his voice was. He was lifting his crutch to hail a cab for me when I said, You make me nervous. He said, You make me nervous. Good, I said. Then I gave him all my numbers. I was in bed and had just turned off the light when the phone rang. Instead of hello, Bobby said, Why do I make you nervous? I said, you seem like a Lothario, a word I hadn't used since college and didn't like the sound of now. He didn't answer right away, and it occurred to me that I'd made him angry, but it wasn't that. I have been, he admitted. I didn't say anything. He said, I don't want to be like that with you. Don't, I said. I asked what made him nervous about me. He said, I'm not going to tell you everything. Then he asked if he could take me out to dinner and a movie on Saturday night. There's a little spider listening to the reading. Now he's dead. At work I told Sam, I think I really, really like this boy. I didn't even realize that I'd said boy until Sam said, did you kiss him on the Ferris wheel? Then a moment later, can he sing? He's a great singer. I said, why? Nice to be around someone who can sing, he said. Gloria's voice practically saved our marriage. That evening, Bobby called to tell me how the sky looked over the river. Later, he called from the restaurant in the village where he he waited tables between motorcycle accidents. He said, what would it take to get you down here to smoke a cigarette with me? I was wearing sweatpants and glasses and needed to wash my hair. I told him I'd come if he promised never to ride his motorcycle drunk again. He said, done. I said, give me an hour. The Lion's Head was known as a writer's bar, and the covers of books written by its patrons hung on the walls. The man Bobby introduced as a writer objected. He, in an Irish accent, he said to me, I'm a school teacher. Bobby interrupted, Whose book is coming out any time now? And the writer teacher allowed this much. Bobby was drinking bourbon with shots of beer. He said, What would you say if I asked you to spend the night with me? I'd say it was too soon. You're right, he said. After work, I walked over to Saks and bought a dress I couldn't afford. It was a turtleneck, but sleeveless, short, but not a mini dress. In it, I was a woman who was soon to leave advertising for a new, thrilling career, as yet undecided. In it, I was a painter at my first opening in a Soho gallery. When I got home, the phone was ringing. I picked it up and and heard, I miss you. I said, I miss you too, and then worried that I'd said too much and kept worrying while we talked. I told him about my brothers, and he told me he wished he was as close to his. His were much older, and both lived in Los Angeles, where one had a small part in a sitcom, and the other, a producer, worked for the mouse, which was what the worker mice apparently called Disney. He asked me about my childhood and I asked him about his. He told me a story about falling off the Hans Christian Andersen statue in Central Park. He would cried and his nanny had said, don't be such a baby, right before he blacked out. Was she fired? No, he moved right along. I think you should know that in sixth grade I won the Faversham Cup for best athlete. Not the Faversham, I said, Jesus. He said, how long before you move in with me do you think? I told him I thought we should wait until after our first date. He said, You know, we're going to have to start making babies right away. Don't drag your feet on this apple bomb. You're not young. Saturday, I went to the gym. I lifted weights for my impending sleevelessness. I ran on the treadmill and walked up the Stairmaster. With every step, I was closer to Bobby. At home, my answering machine was overloaded with messages. Among them, Jack ordering me not to drink too much, and Robert asking me to take a quarter for a phone call in case my date got fresh. There wasn't a message from Bobby. I was sure he would call while I was in the shower. I was sure he would call while I blow-dried my hair. I picked up the phone to make sure it was working. I listened to the dial tone. At 7.30 I put on my new dress. I mascaraed my lashes, I blushed my cheeks, I glossed my lips. At 8 o'clock I poured myself a glass of wine. I tried to read, I tried to do the crossword puzzle, but it was Saturday and too hard. At 8.30 I called Bobby and got his answering machine. What's going on? I said, call me back. At 9.30 I unzipped my dress, put my bathrobe on, and ordered Chinese food. At 10 o'clock the phone rang and I said an icy hello. It was the doorman, food delivery. At 11.30, I called my friend Lori. What do we know about this guy? She said, tell me everything. I told her he'd grown up in Manhattan. She said, I probably know him. When I told her his last name, she said, I know Bobby Guest. And for a second, she was excited by the coincidence. I was afraid she'd gone out with him. You know him? I know who he is, she said. She told me that he was one of a few boys who were famous for being handsome and cool in high school. A friend of hers from Spence had gone out with a friend of his at Collegiate. I'm going to do a little research, she said. When the phone rang at one, I was still hoping it would be Bobby. He's a bad guy, Lori said. He wasn't just a womanizer. He'd betrayed friends. He'd mistreated acquaintances. He'd offended strangers. She said, everybody has a Bobby Guest story. While she enumerated his crimes, I remembered kissing him in Union Square, and I thought, I will never feel like I'm 15 again. Eventually, Bobby Guest lets everyone down, Lori said. That's who he is. Even knowing this, I lay in bed that night going over everything I had said and done, trying to place the moment when I'd lost him. On Saturday, I left another message for Bobby. Whenever the phone rang, I ran for it. Both my brothers offered to kill Bobby, and I thought what fine men they'd grown up to be. (laughs) At work, Sam said, Well, I said, his voice didn't save our marriage. I felt sick all Monday and Tuesday. Sadder, I remembered saying, and you'll never get beyond your hard watering and hard wiring and most of all, I miss you too. Late Tuesday night I finally told myself enough. Even if I had said something wrong, it probably wasn't what I would guess. Replaying everything was just like what I did when I got a shot. I pinched myself so I could feel like I was in charge of the pain. Wednesday I still hadn't decided whether I was going to the last class. Are you nuts, Laurie said, what else do you need to know? Go, Sam said, see what the guy has to say. On the subway down to the new school I was disgusted with myself. I'd once read that Ronald Reagan always followed the advice of the last person he would talked to. I thought, you're like Ronald Reagan. Bobby wasn't in class. I found my painting from the week before and placed it on my easel. It was so wild, it was hard to believe it was mine. Bert reclined into last week's pose. Margot moved her stool closer to mine. In a low voice, she said, I went out with Bert. You're kidding, I said. How was it? Fun, she said. He drives a cab. Did you know that? I drove around with him. She acted like we were good friends, and just then we were. For over an hour, I looked from Bert to my painting and back. When Maureen came up and stood looking at it with me, I said, I don't know what to do with this. She said, maybe it's finished, and I decided it was. I didn't have time to start a new painting before our end-of-class party, so I went outside to smoke a cigarette. Bobby was leaning against a car and stood when he saw me. He traded his crutches for a cane. Be nice to me, he said, I'm a cripple. He lit a cigarette for himself and one for me. He said, I'm sorry about Saturday. In a tone that was polite and detached, he might have said, I'm sorry about your cold. What I'd loved about him in Union Square was what I hated about him now. He made me feel 15. Polite and detached, I said, what happened? I was watching an old movie of my mother's on TV. I mean, she had just a small part. She was a nightclub singer, he went on to say. He struggled to remember the title of the movie as though this was the information I wanted from him. Anyway, he said, I passed out. No, I said. For a moment I was as Maureen strong as I wanted to be. What I meant was, what happened? I saw now that his hand was trembling. I don't know. Is that it? I said, you don't know? He said, we were moving so fast. I said, we were moving fast. He sighed and said, thank you. And the gratitude I heard was the only acknowledgement that he'd, that he'd done anything wrong. You should have called me back, I said. I know, he said, I wish I had. What I thought of then was that he had managed to write stories and sing them in front of people, but he couldn't type them up and put them in an envelope. Still, I waited for him to give me something, a sincere apology, a thorough explanation, a promise for the future, anything at all. Instead, he reached for my hand. What about Saturday? What about Saturday? Dinner and a movie, he said. No. No, you have plans, he said, or no, you won't give me another chance. I shook my head. Wait, he said, this is all because I didn't call you once? I stared at him, and the best-looking senior at Collegiate looked back at me. Jesus, he said, you're tough. No, I said. One time I didn't call you, he said. One strike and I'm out? It was hard to believe that the Bobby Guest who stood in front of me was the Bobby Guest I'd wanted so badly. Well, he said finally, he walked with me to the, the door, at least we talked. Just talking about this with you is a big step for me. I was about to say goodbye when he opened the door for me and himself. He'd come for the party, I realized. He'd come for the party, I realized. He'd wanted to talk to me first, so I wouldn't embarrass him in front of everyone. You know the problem, he said on the elevator? You expected me to change all at once. What made it a party was that Maureen had brought in bottles of soda, a huge bag of pretzels, and a boombox. A babysitter had brought Maureen's daughter, who clung to Bobby. I marveled at the power he had over even over three-year-old women. She was playing with his hair and ears. She was slapping his hands, as I wished I had. As though nothing had happened between us, or as though something still might, he winked at me. Bert and Margot were sitting together on the fainting couch up on the platform. They looked like king, the, the king and queen of the May. Only Michelle stood at an easel. She was painting shocked letters that would soon spell Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland. I didn't hear any music coming from her headphones, and I said, What are you listening to? Nothing, she said. She smiled like she was letting me in on a secret. I wondered what it was. Maybe wearing the Walkman helped her feel less awkward or self-conscious. Maybe it helped her to be alone. I kept my eyes on her, hoping she would tell me, and she did. It's a good hairband. She seemed to remember something and said, oh, and handed me her dad's business card, if you need a DJ. I thanked her. The cancer survivor had to leave early and she came over to me to say goodbye. She held my hands and looked me in the eyes and, I sa- and said, be well, and I said, you too. She smiled at me and squeezed my hands. She seemed to know what I'd been through with Bobby. Then I heard her say the same thing to the principal and the accountant, who were having a good-natured disagreement about what art was, refereed by great-grandmother. Before I left, I caught a glimpse of Cheryl, and I saw now what Bobby had meant. They were alike. Even though she stood by herself, she was performing. She touched her neck and filled her eyes with soul, practicing for the moment when she would be discovered. Okay. So, since I never read that I didn't since I never read that out out loud to a group. I didn't realize how long it was, so I'm sorry that that actually, that is our reading for tonight. <laughs>